Welcome to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Before we get into the news of the day, the four horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, uh, Bill Barr telling us who he really is, uh, the the anti-anti-Trump panic, uh, I want to talk about something that we unveiled today, uh, Bulwark Plus. And I have to say, I'm kind of uh, jazzed about all of this. Look, uh, if you go to our site, you get a complete explanation. Uh, bottom line, uh, we, we have been blown away by the success of the bulwark. To say that it exceeded our wildest expectations is putting it mildly. I, I was, um, I was talking to somebody yesterday about the background. They were, you know, asking me what the original plan was, and I said, to be quite honest, um, there was no plan. Uh, this was the, the the bulwark was in an emergency launch. Uh, you go back and look at the calendar on December fourteenth, two thousand eighteen. Uh, the Weekly Standard was well, was murdered. It was killed by its by its owners. Uh, the bulwark was launched on January seventh, so within a few weeks, and it was uh, you know I, it was an extraordinary story with the core digital staff of the of the weekly standard basically hanging on and we didn't know where we were going to go in fact we had discussions about whether or not you know we were going to get through three months and the three months passed and we uh, found amazingly uh that we were growing that we were finding an audience that um, that that rather remarkably in this era of extreme polarization there were people on the center right and the center left that wanted this kind of non-tribal commentary and it didn't hurt that we attracted an incredible an incredible circle of really bright and talented writers and commentators and artists to the website. So we've been talking for some time about what, where, what, what is our, what is our next step? I mean, we, we have a democracy to save here, people. It's not just the, that we have to finish the fight in the next few weeks. It's the long term, and that's why we're launching Bulwark Plus. Because we want to focus on the long term. We want to grow. We want to build. We want to do more things. Look, we have three main principles. We No partisanship, no tribalism, and we're going to tell you what we really think. And we really prided ourselves on this independence. We've also prided ourselves on the kinds of people that we've attracted. Uh, I, I have a daily newsletter, Morning Shots. And every once in a while, I will turn over the newsletter to reader emails and, and I know that's become one of the most popular features because the emails are so intelligent. I mean, they, we, you, can, you can judge a community or a publication by the quality of the people that follow it. And uh, I have been blown away over and over again by the thoughtfulness and the diversity of the people who come to our website, who subscribe to our newsletters, who listen to our podcast, who read the articles on the, the site. What we're asking now is for you to join us. Uh, those of you that can, that we're offering membership in Bulwark Plus. Look, we are not putting up a paywall for the main site. Uh, there's not going to be a paywall for this podcast. You will continue to get this podcast. You will continue to get all of the articles in the Bulwark. But we figured that we would branch out and create this new product, which will include a new suite of other podcasts, which will be in Bulwark Plus, uh, my newsletter, Morning Shots, Jonathan Last newsletter, which comes out every day in middle of the day, the triad, will be in Bulwark Plus, plus a number of other products that I think you're going to find extraordinarily interesting. Now, why are we doing this? Well, because we want to go forward. We want to expand. We understand that this is a long-term thing. So we've gone 
from, hey, how do we get through the next three months when nobody has a job because the Weekly Standard was killed to, we've created something remarkable and we have formed a community that is remarkable and we want to go ahead. So I want you to check it out if you can, Bulwark Plus. Uh, no pressure, I'm not gonna make the hard sell here. Uh, and as I said before, we want to avoid having ads, pop-ups. Uh, it's funny because right before we started this, we were talking about trying to watch a video on another site and it was absolutely impossible because of what's happened you know, on the internet with you know the ads and, the, and all the spam, et cetera. We're, we are committed to avoiding that. And so this is why we were asking for your support because we know that this is important to you. We know this conversation is going to continue. We know that no matter what happens in November, uh, the, the issues that we have been wrestling with and the problems that we've been confronting are going to continue and we want to continue to be an important voice. So again, if you, if you get my newsletter on a regular basis, you will have seen that it looks different because we moved it over from MailChimp to uh, Substack and that will host our newsletters and our podcasts from, from, from now on. And again, we've always tried to do special things for the people who support us. For So again, the people who contribute to the Bulwark from here on out, you know, we're going to offer you access to the Bulwark Plus. Um, again, this is not going to affect your ability to listen to this podcast or the articles, but there will be the newsletters and there will be the other products. So please just check it out. Um, you know, the last four years have been, um, will have been pretty awful. And I think that there are moments when you think, uh, you know, have I lost my mind or is it just the rest of the world? And we we have tried to be an oasis in all of that. We've tried to be a home for people who are politically uh, orphaned. I certainly consider myself a political orphan and we're going to continue to do that. Uh, so if you can go and, you know, help us out with or well, not help us out, uh, if, if you want to be a member of Bulwark Plus, um, you know, please consider that, you know, think think about it. And because. If, if if you're if you're able and willing, Bulwark Plus is going to be a way to support what we have been doing here together. So join us because we do have this country to save. Well, today joining me on the podcast is one of our, our favorite contributors, Robert Trasinski, uh, who has a, a piece up today about Skidmore College and the campus surveillance system. And the other day wrote a piece about uh, th why this is not the Flight 93 election. So we wanted to get him back on the podcast. Robert, thanks for thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me back. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, I just wanted to comment on on some of the things that happened yesterday. Uh, the, the, the president throwing his director of the CDC under the bus. What, what an amazing moment. I mean, it was it was it was like watching it in, in real time, this this car crash where Joe Biden says, you know, this president is going to politicize uh, the CDC. And then like within five minutes, what does Trump do? He comes out and he politicizes the CDC, throws Redfield under the bus for saying that yeah, the vaccine's probably not going to be you know, widely distributed until the middle of next year. And of course, Trump comes out and says, yeah, he didn't know what he was talking about. That was bad enough. But then there was this moment. And I I keep coming back to this theme that we're really not all in this together. And so let, let's let's listen to the president talking about red states and blue states here. If you look at what we've done and all of the lives that we've saved, and I'm going to ask that a graph be put up and now it's up. Uh, this was right at the beginning. This was our prediction that if we do a really good job, we'll be at about 100,000 100, to 240,000 deaths 
and we're below that substantially, and we'll see where it comes out. But that would be if we did the good job. If the not-so-good job was done, you'd be between 1.5 million. I remember these numbers so well, and 2.2 million, uh, that's quite a difference. So we're down in this territory, and that's despite the fact that the blue states had, had tremendous death rates. If you take the blue states out, we're uh, at, at a level that uh, I don't think anybody in the world would be at. We're really at a very low level. But wait, 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 wait. If you t- if you take the blue states out, sort of like uh, e pluribus unum unum, and except for the the blue states. So I mean, Robert, once again, this is kind of a window into the president's mind that he really sees the country as two countries, doesn't he? The red states and the blue states. What I take from this is that blue lives don't matter. Oh, pretty good. That was, <laughs> that was that was well done. Look, I want to talk about uh, your your piece about Skidmore because, as you know, I'm I'm very very interested in this whole issue of the intellectual climate on 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 campus, the the illiberalism um, on on campus. But let's just go back um, a, a couple of days to this whole anti anti Trump panic. Right. And and the 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 Danielle Pletka article that was in The Washington Post, where she's a fellow at AEI, very highly respected, very, uh, you know, up until recently was considered to be quite, you know, anti anti Trump, very, very critical of Trump, but decides that, you know what, she just might have to vote for Donald Trump because the left wing is just so over the top and Joe Biden really can't be can't be trusted. Now, you, your piece was not a direct response to hers. Right, because I felt, heard it before it, it, that came out. Right, but but in a sense, it is an answer to it because you're looking at the same issue, and you know that there are these conservatives out there who are talking them. it feels like they're talking themselves into voting for Trump because they're just so appalled by the left and the apparently the leader of the left-wing revolution, Joe Biden. <laughs> so so t- talk to me about your piece, because you are, uh, I, but for our listeners, I mean, you, 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 if we have a range of contributors to the bulwark, we have some very progressive, kind of centrist. You're probably one of the most conservative, right? Actually, I never call myself a conservative. If I have my... Right. If I had my druthers, I'd call myself a liberal, but, you know, small L liberal, right? Well, classical liberal, but I mean, yeah, we used to yeah. call it classical liberal. I think we should just steal the term back because nobody else seems to want it. Uh, and just, just you now get rid of the classical, just say liberal. Or I are actually in the bulwark a while back, I argued that what we need is neoclassical liberalism. So we need to get the, the, that's a great bumper sticker, but the, the old fashioned liberals, uh, the, the people who, call, who who tend to be called neoliberals, the center left people who tend to be called neoliberals, and the center right people who tend to be called classical liberals, and get those together and form some kind of ideological coalition because I think we have, we have more in common than we do with the far left or the, the oh. nationalist right. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I actually for about five minutes had the the idea that that maybe we should we should just dump the whole uh, term conservatism and just go for, you know, you know, re- again, recapture liberalism. And and the, the, the book that really got me thinking about that was George Will's book on conservatism, exactly. which, which, which yeah. I think is fantastic. And yet at the end of the, at the end of, the, by the end of the book, you realize what he's arguing for is classical liberalism. Right. And I remember even suggesting the idea, maybe we should just like take the, take the name back, just like as you suggested, but, 
from a marketing point of view, from a just like real world point of view, it was just not going to happen. Well, I, you know, I, what I what actually inspired, one of the things that inspired me was having a conversation about this with a, uh, a friend, a, sort of a fellow parent, uh, my kid at, at my kid's school, who someone I knew, who I know was sort of a conventional center left liberal type and talking about what liberalism means. And I, I just love the confusion it brings to people on that side of the spectrum to ask, what does liberalism really mean? And the fact that it doesn't mean socialism and it doesn't mean political correctness, you know, clearly, you know, those are illiberal strains. Uh, so I think I like the uh, sort of ideological confusion it creates in people's minds is almost a plus in that sense that it gets people to rethink the, those basic questions of what is liberalism. You know, I go back to, to Ronald Reagan in his 1964 time of choosing speech, where he says, there is no left or right. There's just an up and a down, up to the maximum of freedom and down to totalitarianism. And I, I think that's sort of my guiding point in talking about politics. It's not left or right. It's up and down. And so I'm, I'm in the upside. So I've never called myself a conservative for that Partly for that reason, I'm, I'm a secular free marketer. I'm an Ayn Rand guy. I'm an objectivist. So, but I'm the most radical, probably in terms of being a pro free marketer. Uh, it, so, in that respect, I uh, I don't use libertarian either because that usually means you're a um, you're a blame America first guy when it comes to foreign policy. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, probably the most radical in terms of small being a small government guy of all the people uh, at the bulwark. Okay, so let's talk about the the, the whole Flight 93 approach to the election. For people who are listening, this was an article written back in 2016 by Michael Anton and uh, basically said, look, uh, we're, we're on the, we're on the plane. If the if, you know, the, the Democrats, we, we need to storm the cockpit and we may all die anyway. Um, but we have no alternative because if, if, if the Democrats were elected, if Hillary was elected, um, America is dead and it's destroyed. And there is that sort of mentality here. So there is a real thing. You know, I mean, a lot of people are dunking on Danielle Pletka's piece, which is easily parodied, by mm -hmm. the way. When's the last time The Washington Post ran an op-ed piece and then ran two parodies <laughs> of it? Yes. Of it? I mean, really? And they're both really, they're devastated. Alexandra uh, Petri, who's been on this podcast, yeah. uh, Daniel Dresner, who's also been on this podcast, both did uh, takedowns of yeah. how ridiculous her arguments are, which, and they're both hilarious. I liked, I liked Alexandra's. So I was like, why stop forcing me to do this thing that I totally don't want to do? And it's, yeah. you know, it's, well, and it's well, clear and that it, protesting too much. Well, and, and Daniel Dresner's point is that essentially a lot of this is is the running against imaginary Joe Biden, that if you just pretend that Joe Biden um, is going to do the things he specifically said he's not going to do, if you just imagine a Joe Biden who looks a little bit more like Vladimir Lenin who <laughs> might do these terrible things, then you can justify. But to be serious about it, there are, in fact, a lot of conservatives who are saying, OK, we know everything about Donald Trump. It's been awful. It's been terrible. But these Democrats, uh, the left is so dangerous to American freedom, uh, is are so out there. And you uh, have written about this. You have a piece today mm -hmm. yes. about the stifling political correctness on campus. And we do know that there are starkly illiberal, illiberal uh, strains on on the left and. So people are using that as as the reason, you know, you, you cannot vote even for Joe Biden because the Democrats have been so captured by this illiberal revolutionary left. 
And I find it interesting that you're not buying that. Well, okay. So first of all, I do buy because, because you're not a Biden fan, right? I'm not, I've never been a Biden fan. I used to refer to him as Senator Blowhard because you know at every every congressional hearing, every Senate hearing, he'd be there to grandstand uh, more than to shed any light on anything. Um, so I, you know, I, I've never been a Biden fan. I've, I've generally regarded him as a joke uh, more than anything else, and you know because he hasn't been that crucially important uh, right. up to now. Um, but you know, for all his faults, I, I don't view him as being as dangerous. But what I do want to say is, I do accept the point that the far left is dangerous. That the far left is extremely illiberal. That if they got their way with everything they wanted to do, it would be extremely bad for the country. But what I'm not buying is the idea that Joe Biden is the guy who's moving us there faster, or, or yeah, that he's going to be the leading edge of this. But more to the point is the fact that. I don't buy that Trump is the answer. And I also think if you use the far left as a bogeyman, as an eternal bogeyman to say, oh, you have to vote for whoever has an R next to his name, you're never going to be able to confront the illiberal strains that are taking over the right. And that's the big problem. Is And, and the argument I make in my, I call it the anti-Flight 93 election, is that if we're going to have to take on the illiberal strain in the right and push back at it and get it out of power and maybe try to discredit it, we better do so now when the alternative is Joe Biden rather than four years from now when the alternative might be somebody much, much worse. You know, be- yeah. So, so if, if in fact, and, and this is an interesting point that I thought that, that, that you made here, you know, that, that if, uh, if you decide that you're going to reject Joe Biden and go for another term with, with Donald Trump, you're going to end up with, um, an increasingly toxified right and probably a more toxic left as, as well. Well, so here's the question. It, depending on how the I, – I gave this out in the in the bulwark probably like six months ago. Yeah. Uh, is that, you know, what happens if one person wins versus the other person losing? If, if, if Donald Trump loses, it's a great opportunity for a lot of people like you and me to say, we told you so, right? And to say, look, we told you this was not going to work out. We told you this guy, you know, uh, I like the sort of Washington generals argument, right? So they, yes. one, the, one of the most persuasive arguments by the pro-Trump people is that the Republican Party used to be like the Washington generals. Those guys were the patsies who always play the Harlem Globetrotters. And, you know, it's, it's all set up. They're always going to lose, right? But they're the gracious losers. And that was the role of the Republican Party, old Republican establishment. They were the gracious losers. And so we're going to go out of that and we're going to win. But what if you end up being the ungracious losers, right? So what if you, right. what if you say, we're going to not be the Washington generals anymore. We're going to play hard. We're going to be tough. We're going to be ungracious. Gracious. We're going to be ugly. And then we're still going to lose, right? And that's like worse, a worse outcome to be the ungracious losers uh, who, you know, not only did you lose the election, but then you become a standing, I think for a generation, Repub- uh, the, the right is going to be recovering from this for a generation that that Donald Trump is the face and representative of what we supposedly stand for. You know, we're going to be dealing with that for a fallout of that for a generation. So at least a generation. So, you know, if Donald Trump loses, we're the ones who get to say, we told you so, and try to reform things and try to push things more in our direction. I'm not sure how well it's going to turn out for the Republican Party, but there's at least it's going to, that's going to happen. If, uh, if Joe Biden loses, who gets to say, I told you so? 
the Bernie bros get to say, I told you so, right? It's the, it's the, the very, very far left. Now, Bernie's not going to be the nominee four years from now. Uh, probably not because he's going to be even older. But there's a lot of other people competing for that, you know, progressive champion. And, and you know, I hate to say it, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be eligible to run for president four years from now. So if if they say, look, we, we, we nominated a moderate, somebody carefully in the middle, somebody supposed to appeal to all these independents and, and to these disgruntled Republicans, and it didn't work. The next time around, there's the Democratic Party is much more likely to put up somebody who's extremely radical. So you wrote this, and and we I, we got some blowback. I, I got some blowback from this. Yeah. You wrote, I don't I don't like Biden, and I really don't like the fact that he wants again that these are our only stupid choices. But a Trump win will create an even more hostile ideological environment for advocates of liberty. So I want to talk about illiberalism. Mm-hmm. What is the illiberalism on the right right now? The the rising illiberalism, because as you point out, you know, in the era of Trump, the the, the phrase libertarian has become like a dirty word. Right, and it's a real whipsaw because you know, I um, I was pretty heavily involved in the local Tea Party movement here about ten years ago. You know, out here in Charlottesville, it was pretty pretty active, um, and. You know, during the Tea Party area, you had this sort of rapprochement between the conservatives and the libertarians. We all felt like we could work together. We were all going in the same direction. And I thought always at the time, at least, that that Rand Paul uh, becoming a Republican senator and sort of a you know, well-known figure in the Republican Party was a symbol of that, that, you know, he came from this libertarian wing and here he was being sort of incorporated into the Republican Party. There was this rapprochement between the, the more libertarian wing of the party and the more conser- and the conservatives. Yeah. For a moment, yeah. For a moment. And that's really gone completely the opposite direction. And libertarian is now sort of a dirty word among the conservatives. And there's this new rising, quote unquote, nationalist approach, which, and and they had a conference, I think, middle of last year or, or middle of 2018, I think it was. They had a conference where, you know, Yoram Hazoni and a lot of these other people uh, who are the sort of spokesman for this uh, Patrick... Uh, um, Okay. Patrick Deneen. Deneen. Yeah. Deneen, right. Yeah. I, I almost messed up his name. Patrick Deneen. A couple of these other people who are the spokesman for this, this nationalist approach. And they specifically say the, our enemy is the autonomous individual. Individualism is the enemy. And uh, the idea that freedom and the freedom of the individual is the center of our politics, that's what we're out to get rid of. Right. So it is, it is very openly and explicitly an illiberal approach and a collectivist approach. The idea that the good of the nation is uh, as a this, whole, as opposed to the good of the individuals that are part of it. This really is a whipsaw because, and, and I don't want to necessarily digress, but going back to the Tea Party, in retrospect, what the hell was the Tea Party about? Because a lot of the folks in the Tea Party are now completely all in on many of these, this illiberal conservatism in the, with the nationalism, have bought in on Trumpism. And here we're sitting here with a Tea Party-backed president who just yesterday said, yes, we absolutely need to spend more money on the stimulus. So the Tea Party was not about fiscal conservatism or about small government after all, was it? Or what? What the hell happened? No, I, I think that's what it was about at the time. But like I said, it was a rapprochement between different wings of the right. And what happened is that as the Tea Party movement lost its momentum, I mean, the Tea Party movement kind of died in 2014. That was when it got its last uh, sort of electoral victories. Uh, but I think two things happened. One is that it, it died It died partly from success and partly from lack of success. And that's a kind of paradoxical way of putting it. So let me unpack that. 
the success part was there are a lot of places like the fifth district in Charlottesville is the area around Charlotte, uh, you know, it's area goes from Charlottesville to Lynchburg down in central Virginia where they have, we had a Democrat in Congress uh, who had gotten elected by a margin of like 800 votes in 2008 during that big wave from Barack Obama. And clearly, and this had happened a lot of places that Barack Obama brought a lot of people into Congress who were out of step with their districts. Uh, who are way more right. to the left than the districts they represented. And so a bunch of those uh, people got sort of flushed out in the 2010 and I think the last of them in the 2014 election. And I, so I think that was the success of the Tea Party was it was this rebalancing of people in more right-leaning uh, districts sure. getting rid of, you know, having the success. And then once that's gone, the urgency kind of disappears because, you know, we don't have um, Tom Perriello. Tom Perriello was a Democratic congressman here. We don't have Tom Perriello to kick around anymore. So what are we going to do? Uh, but the other, the lack of success was that the Republicans in Congress actually did do a lot. I mean, they were the, the, the only restraint in government spending that I've seen in the only thing even close to restraint in government spending that I've seen in the last 20 years uh, is what uh, John Boehner and, you know, the remember the sequester and all of that around 2013, 2014. So there was some success, but they never uh, um, uh, repealed Obamacare. They didn't you know they didn't because Obama was still in office, there's, there's well, only so much going to happen, right? There, there are certain things that weren't going to happen. And I think some of them just got impatient. And they, that's where this sort of Washington generals argument about what good is the GOP establishment? They never accomplish anything. That's where that comes from. Well, and, and, and I, also there, there, was, there was the rise of this outrage industry, you know, I mean, and they, well, I think the, that that feeds the, 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 the yeah, the tea, the tea party turned itself into this, you know, constantly demanding things that could never be happen. Um, and, 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 and really I, I felt it morphing into the, we, we want to be permanently angry and permanently betrayed. And somehow that didn't morph into this kind of politics of resentment and anything that, you know, makes liberals cry is good for us. And, you know, we're always, we're all, yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why I think that I said it died by lack of success, because I think that after a while, that lack of success turned into this bitterness and this anger and this outrage industry and the outrage and wanting to be angry at people became the goal instead of actually having an agenda. But I think the other thing that happened is that as the, tea, the is that the Tea Party movement did not just turn into a bunch of pro-Trump people. It, it was a, it was a, a coalition that formed together and then a part of it peeled off and became pro-Trump. And a part of it, I think, went back to being somewhat politically apathetic. So let's go to the moment we're in right now, because uh, you and you know a lot of conservatives and and the, here's the mood on the right. And I'm not talking about the never Trump, right? But, but right. On, on the right, which is that, OK, Donald Trump has, you know, been embarrassing in many ways, but he's turned out on a policy matter, leaving aside the personality and the style, uh, to be relatively conservative. And the Democratic Party has moved hard left. So first of all, you know, shouldn't conservatives, the, the, the argument would be, well, at least, you know, he has governed as a conservative and the Democrats would, you know, would impose this left wing regime, which you've written about yeah. very, very extensively. So, you know, this is the anti anti Trump temptation. This is the Daniel mm -hmm. Pletka's of the world saying, OK, he's been bad, but at least he's been conservative. And Joe Biden is simply a stalking horse for Che Guevara. 
<laughs> right? I mean, that, yeah, that is the argument. Um, now, the one thing I would say is it, it it really exaggerates the extent to which Trump has been good from our perspective, from right. the perspective of somebody on the right. And I think part of it has to do with people pay attention to the issues that Trump wants them to pay attention to, and not the issues they themselves thought were super important five years ago. So you mentioned, you know, the spending that we've had and the, the total lack of any restraint on spending. And, and they just came out with a a commitment to America. It's like the latest version of the contract with America, uh, the supposed agenda of the Republican Congress that they're running on in this election. And somebody pointed out that controlling government spending isn't even in there. It is no longer, it is officially- It's not even there. No, it's not even, it's like mentioned like in passing that we will reduce the debt or something like that. While it's just like a little phrase tacked on somewhere, but it's not a bullet item. It's not a, you know, in the contract with America, it was the first agenda item. We have to decrease the federal budget. We have to get back to a balanced budget. You know, that sort of thing. That used to be the top thing. Now it's not even on the agenda. So one of the things that happens is this sort of memory hole that that things go into where, yeah. you know, Donald Trump brings us to, oh, they're burning the flag and there's Antifa over here and there's this over there and there's that over there. And you pay attention to the things that he's making noise about. And you don't pay attention to the things that really mattered to you five years ago. So if you pay attention to, uh, you know, the the budget and the the deficit, I mean, you know, the deficit's going to be at least two point eight trillion for two thousand twenty. I mean, two point eight trillion with a T, uh, and it was it was already nearly a trillion before you know any emergency and and economic uh, down, down you know before the pandemic before the economic decline, it was already nearly a trillion. So, you know, total lack of, of interest in any kind of control on spending or debt. And even in foreign policy, you know, there are a few things here like this Israel deal, but there's also, you know, the deal they made with the Taliban that were basically not just walking away from Afghanistan, but empowering the Taliban. Uh, Sheikh Atiri has done some very good stuff on the bulwark about yeah. that. So that's part of it. Now, but I think the overall thing, I, did, I said I didn't write my piece as a response to Danielle Pletka. And if I had, I think there's something else I would have included, which is... The main technique I think she's using is goes something like this. You take the very, very worst things that are being done on the left, and you take those as central to the entire agenda yes. and meaning of the Democratic Party. And all the good things that are done on the left are just, you know, they're in, inconsequential and it's, you know, all, or all the, I won't say good things, but all the non-scary things, you know, the, the moderate things, you say, oh, those just are inconsequential window dressing. And then when you look to the right, you say, well, look, sure, you know, there's some scary stuff out there and some racists and people and things like that. But, you know, that, but that's that's insignificant and inconsequential. And then you take all the stuff that you like that's good and you say that's the real essence of what's going on. And it's clear that there's, you know, there's a very high selectivity there. Uh, but, you know, if I were to, and it involves a lot of denial on, on, in two directions. This, no, this is, this, is, this is an excellent point. And this is exactly the process where you, you can, you, you pick out the worst example of the other side, make that, this is who they are, that defines mm -hmm. them. But you are the worst guys on your side. Well, you can ignore all of them. The problem, of course, is that you have Donald Trump, who's blotting out the sun on, <laughs> on, on the right and encouraging and empowering those worst guys. Right. He's whereas he's retweeting white nationalists and Q, QAnon conspiracists and that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas Joe Biden ran against a lot of the, 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 the crazy and beat them decisively. Well, the big argument here is that, you know, they're saying, oh, well, Joe Biden will just be a figurehead and it'll be the far left that's really running the show. I was like, well, why hasn't been that, that been the case of his campaign? You know, the big thing about his campaign from the very beginning, and there's been some good articles documenting this, 
is is run by a bunch of moderate Democrats who basically have 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 run the campaign as if Twitter didn't exist. Uh, I, I wrote an article for the Bulwark about how um, Trump is our first extremely online president. Somebody else made them a comment that uh, if if Biden wins, he will probably be our last offline president. Right? <laughs> he's he's somebody who right. he 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 is a man of the pre-internet era. He does not have the chatter on Twitter sitting in the back of his head, uh, having this this exerting this influence over him. And he's run his campaign very much as if the real core of the Democratic Party is, you know, pragmatic uh, people out there, you know, uh, uh, non-woke black people in South Carolina are the, you know, who, who don't want to defund the police, they want to reform them, you know, that this sort of reasonable moderates are the real core of the Democratic Party. And it turns out he was actually correct about that. <laughs> uh, and he actually won, he actually won the nomination that way. So the idea that somehow you know, that's an illusion. And, and, you know, when he gets in the office, he's actually going to be run completely by the left. Now, I don't think he'll provide the kind of resistance to the far left that I would like to see. He is, after all, a Democrat, right? So I'm not, you know, singing hosannas about what a great, what a great and wonderful leader uh, Joe Biden is going to be. I think he will be more susceptible to the craziness of the far left than, you know, the candidate I'd like to see. But the candidate I'd like to see is unfortunately not on the ballot. Um, but you know the idea that he's going to be just a shadow, a puppet president, and the far left going to be controlling the strings goes against the, how the entire way he ran his campaign. Yeah, I think that that's why the, the creation of the imaginary Joe Biden. So again, let me tell you a little bit of a story here, because I mean, and, and you'll understand this. I think, you know, I, it, it I've been anti-Trump, uh, never Trump. So have you, you know, really yeah. from from the beginning at 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 considerable inconvenience. <laughs> Um, but I but I will say that it was easy for me to be it was much easier for me to be anti-Trump than it is to actually vote for a Democrat of any of any kind. Yeah. OK, this is yeah. so to go from anti-Trump to pro Joe Biden was was a wrench. And it just it, it takes you a while. I mean, in, in part, I, I voted for third party. Um, you know, four years ago, you know, in part because I didn't think there was any chance that he was going to win. Yeah. And because I didn't I didn't want to you know, feel that it was a binary choice. But, you know, this has been a this has been a difficult thing. Now, if it had the Democrats nominated Bernie Sanders, I, I think I probably would have been never Trump, never Bernie. Yeah. But Joe Biden is the is the moderate guy who actually does speak to people who think that the soul of the nation is 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 at risk. And eventually what I came around to thinking, um, and you and I are both kind of policy wonk guys, but at this particular moment, I realized that, that, that politics is less about specific policy differences than it is about values, fundamental values, and that, that there will be times when I can disagree with you on eight out of 10 issues, but if I think that you are an honest, honorable, decent, empathetic human being who understands and values the rule of law and liberal democracy and constitutionalism, then you and I can do business. So for me, it's hard to say I am for Joe Biden, but I am because quite frankly, um, this is not a normal election and this is not a normal choice. So um, I, I actually... Yeah. The reason I'm, I'm mentioning this today is, is I was actually supposed to do this this press thing. The the Biden campaign actually called me up. Listen to this, yeah. this, you know, and said, you know, would you like to do a Republicans for Biden? Well, I'm not really a Republican, but I will, you know, I will explain why, you know, I've broken with, you know, 30 years of conservative Republican rhetoric in this particular case. I, if you want me to do that, 
I will do that. And so they said that and they set it up and they sent me press releases on it. And then late last night, I got this email saying, hey, sorry for the uh, late notice, but uh, due to some moving, pe- listen to this, this is classic, due to some moving pieces on the campaign side and shifting get out the vote priorities, we're going to postpone tomorrow's press conference, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and hey, we'll be sure to reach out for any future asks. So yeah, it's like, really, uh, yeah. thanks, thanks. You, you know what I'm saying here? It's like, it, it got uh, spiked. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody good, you know, we don't want that. We just, we don't, you know. So look, I understand. I'm used to that from media things where they send that and the reading between the lines is we got somebody more famous than you to go. Yeah, yeah, show. yeah. <laughs> so we or, you. Or, or, or in this particular case, we there's a lot of Democrats who still hate your guts. And so <laughs> That's probably yes, it. Yes. Yes. So we're all about reaching across the divide, but hey, but not no. to you. <laughs> Yeah, but, but but not to you exactly. But I, I mean, I, I, I get it. But you know, this the the case that I I think is so is so important to make is to is to other you know center right conservatives mm-hmm. who just need to understand that you know that yeah there are things that you're going to get from this president. But mm-hmm. but I mean the the abandonment of principle on you know f- free trade, free markets, the rule of law. Uh, the embrace or or the tolerance of corruption, uh, you know the yeah. the you know the the abandonment of America's role in the world. Um, Donald Trump does not really believe in American exceptionalism, you know, dis- d- despite all of this, he doesn't think of America as a shining city on a hill the way that Ronald Reagan. Well, I, I think I think yeah. the biggest thing for me, uh, it, it's something that bridges domestic policy and foreign policy is. His love affair with authoritarians. I, well, I was going get, to get to that. That is yeah. stunning to me. Can you imagine, you know, a, a Republican president who claims to be a conservative and yet is fascinated not just by Vladimir Putin, but by all of the worst yes. thuggish authoritarians and what appears to attract him the most is, in fact, their thuggishness and their cruelty. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. And, and by contrast, yeah. you know, now see, here's the thing. I, I have the great fortune. So you're in Wisconsin, so you have to decide how you're going to vote because it might actually make a difference, right? It's a sw- it's it's a very pretty close. The the election is yeah. pretty close there. In Virginia, much. I don't. It doesn't matter what I decide. It's uh, it's Virginia's like ten or twelve points. You know, Biden's ten or twelve points up in Virginia. I'm not going to make a difference one way or the other. I can not vote for him, and it won't matter. So I don't. I, I'm very happy that I don't have to make that decision this year. But um, I will say that Biden represents, you know, and he's been doing this from the very beginning, campaigning this way. And I think it is, you know, for all his faults, he represents a return to normality. Yeah, that he's in. You know, he he has faults, but he has faults in the way a normal politician has faults. Uh, and Trump is represents this abnormality, this huge de- de- departure. From every the way our politics works, and that thing we just began with earlier—the the blue lives don't matter—the uh, um, the uh, idea that well, if you don't count the blue states, we're doing well. How appalling is it? I mean, you, it, it happens so often that we get numb to it. And I think that whole sort of argument about how well, look how scary the left is—that's terrible. It, it and then minimizing anything bad that happens to the right. I think it, it's it that is possible because of that numbness. That he creates because he's doing it every day, all the time, three tweets a day at least that are just absolutely appalling. So you just price it in. It becomes normal. It becomes expected and no longer shocks you anymore. And so then they, that's how they talk you into sort of minimizing it. But, you know, you have to really, you know, keep that perspective that this is an extremely abnormal president who acts in extremely abnormal ways and breaches all of the usual conventions that we have that, you know, 
you, you, you may actually despise half the country, but you're not supposed to say it. <laughs> right. That's what it takes it off that normal right left axis. And, and, and Mona Chern had, an, had a piece that she wrote for us as well that really made this point very powerful. She said, look, the, the one essential rock upon which this country depends is the rule of law. And then she was, you know, when it went there, she said, look, you know, preserving the rule of law is more crucial than blocking Medicare for all, more essential even than preventing another uh, Iran deal. If the rule of law is undermined, as Trump is doing and threatens to accelerate everything else, prosperity, civil cohesion, security is in danger. Everything else. Those are the stakes. Not things like the filibuster, not hairstyles, not virtue signaling. Not whether or not you're going to watch cuties on on Netflix. You know, these are <laughs> fundamental issues. So, you know, I you know part of it is is that we we have over the last four years have become numbed and accept you know the the abuse, the 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 narcissism, you know, the willingness to stoke racial animus. Um, but and and this this ongoing uh, assault on the rule. But but Bill Barr, I mean, he, here's a guy who yeah. you know it, 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 at least there's nothing imaginary or fake about Bill Barr. I mean, Bill Barr, give him credit. He is telling us who he is over and over and over again, and you, you kind of get an indication of where this country goes in the second term and how anyone who thinks of themselves as a libertarian is comfortable with that is uh, well, that's for a topic for another day. I love the signs all over Southeast Wisconsin vote for Trump to preserve freedom. Yeah. And there's, and there's Bill Barr basically saying, yeah, we ought to, you know, invoke this, you know, charge people with sedition. Um, you know, I, I, I alone can determine who, who gets uh, prosecuted or doesn't get, um, you know, get, as, get as, as, as let's charge the mayor of Seattle criminally. Yeah. You know? In this day and age where everybody's supposed to love Hamilton and downgrade Jefferson, I'm a Jeffersonian still. And I remember that he, he ran against the alien and sedition acts. Uh, that was one of the, the things about, uh, the Adams administration that, that really galvanized people against it and, and basically destroyed the Federalist Party is the this use of sedition as a way to punish people that who are your political opponents. And I think that, yeah, it is a totally abnormal thing. The way I would put it is that the I think the worst outcome likely from a Biden administration is we become more like a Western European welfare state. And the worst outcome from Donald Trump was we become more like Putin's Russia. And if I had to choose between those two, it's not a very, you know, I, I don't like either either result, but the one of them is clearly better than the other. See, this is the this is the thing that yes, you know, you you might have expanded social programs which you and I might critique, uh, but those seem like the old form of politics, the old kinds of threats. The threat posed by another four years of Trumpism is 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 much more. I, I know the word existential has been used over and over again, but in terms of what it does to the culture, what it does to the fabric of the country, what it does to you know constitutional norms, all of those things is so much graver uh, than than but than that. Okay, but 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 uh, I also think it's worthwhile just to remind our friends on the center left what it is about the illiberal left that yes. freaks conservatives out. So could you just briefly tell me, people should go to the, the website and read uh, Robert's story about what's going on in Skidmore. But this, and, and, and again, this has become the symbol of what's going on in the left, this, this incredible bullying, uh, you know, this, this uh, demand for ideological conformity right. that used to be confined to university campuses and probably is found there in the most virulent form. But you tell a really scary story about Skidmore. 
Well, yeah. Okay. So uh, I will say to give them credit that there are some people on the center left. I mean, there's that uh, Harper's letter that came out a while back Very much, uh, against yeah. cancel culture. So there are some people on the center left who are really waking up about this and saying, wait a minute, uh, this is a problem and we have to confront it. And I'm very glad to see that. I think that's, a, you know, I think us complaining about it is a lot less influential than, you know, people who are on the center left who are sort of within the fold complaining about it and saying that these to stop. So this is a great example of exactly something we're talking about. So this has happened at Skidmore College. It's a small liberal arts school in upstate New York near Saratoga Springs. And uh, there was a professor there who was spotted in the crowd at a Blue Lives Matter rally. So this is, you know, Blue Lives Matter versus uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, the pro-police rally. He was spotted in the crowd. And he wasn't an organizer of it. He wasn't speaking at it. He was just there. Uh, and the bunch of, a couple of students noticed him there and started a social media campaign demanding that he be fired from his job at the university uh, simply because he was there at the protest. And I sort of described that as this sort of volunteer uh, amateur surveillance safe we had, a sort of a, a spontaneous Stasi that we have, where you're constantly being watched and people are recording you on their phones and and telling and informing the authorities of your of your um, uh, thought crime. And that's what they and so they they mounted this campaign to get him fired. Now the good news is the university did not fire him. Uh, yeah, it's important. And actually, to their credit, I think they, from what I could tell, I talked to David Peterson is the professor's name. I talked to him and he said, from what I, basically, they didn't even consider firing him just for being at a, a political rally or holding the wrong political views. He says he's known to his fellow faculty as somebody who's more sort of a conservative, but he says probably not really known to students that way because he teaches metalsmithing, right? So politics doesn't come up in metalsmithing. But, um, uh, they said the, the university didn't even consider firing for his political views. They did an investigation, spent a couple of weeks investigating because there's this form letter that was going out that people were sending in, accusing him of creating a hostile environment for students oh. of color and all that. It, very vague, of course. And the university investigated that and cleared him. Now, it doesn't mean he's out, you know, completely. Uh, avoiding consequences because he says, you know, enrollments in his class have dropped, uh, have, you know, uh, dropped. And, and he was investigated. <laughs> and yeah, he was investigated. And his wife says, you know, his wife said, you know, okay, great. Where do we go to get our reputations back? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, he's been speared as a racist and a white supremacist and all of that. But the interesting thing, what he and I both really noticed about it is there was an op-ed done by one of these woke students in the school newspaper talking about her big complaint was not just about you know, there's a professor who was at this protest. She also went on at length to complain about how there are all these facilities workers on the campus, the guys, you know, fixing the plumbing and doing the electricity who are going around with um, Blue Lives Matter masks on or with Trump bumper stickers on their car. And we've complained to the university and they haven't done anything about it. And that's what was amazing to me, this idea that, that, you know, the, the help, I mean, this is a $58,000 a year tuition school. And these are people who are being given liberal arts degrees and, you know, the, the big class divide in America is college educated versus non-college educated. These are the college educated kids who are going to go on, at least some of them to, you know, upper middle class jobs and elite positions in, in the world. And they're complaining that the help has political opinions. Jeez. <laughs> you know, well, as, as, as you point out, you know, all of this serves as a massive in-kind contribution to Donald Trump's re-election campaign because it's proof 
you know, for real Americans, real Americans, quote unquote, that, that the quote unquote elites look down on them and want to impose their dogmas on them. Well, it, it explains right. to you why it is there are a lot of Trump supporters, especially blue collar people who feel like the left simply wants to expunge us. It wants to get rid of us. It wants it wants to destroy us for ha- for not agreeing with its political views. And they've got a point. There is a there is a wing of the left that, you know, that that wants to do that. Now, the thing is, that is a wing of the left. You know, that's the the very far left. And like I said, there's, you know, the great news is there's, you know, Andrew Sullivan and and uh, Yasha Munk and, and uh, a bunch of these people, um, Thomas Chatterton Williams, a bunch mm-hmm. of these sort of center left people who are saying, no, we're against that. You know, we want to have robust discussion and, and debate. Uh, and you know, there's the you, you know, Skidmore College is not a bastion of conservatism. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a left leaning university, but you know, the university administration didn't fire Dave Peterson because of this. I don't think they're probably going to fire the guy who's screwing in the light bulbs because he has a, a Trump T-shirt on. So this is just a wing of the left, but it's important to recognize that this is there, it's out there, and this is what legitimately, I think, terrifies some people, especially, you know, if you're if you're a, an electrician or a plumber or, you know, one of these blue collar guys who goes and, and it's, you know, he's, he's there working at the university and you're you're fixing somebody's dorm room and they are just appalled that you that you even exist as someone who doesn't share their political views. It has that sort of totalitarian feel to it. No, and I I, th- I think that it's hard to overstate that, and I, I wish many of the, the the woke pundits would would walk through mm-hmm. small towns in Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa, and, and and perhaps recognize why it's important not to sound crazy. Okay, that didn't mean <laughs> to say crazy, but not not to not to um, you know, not to say things that convey their contempt and their dislike for others, because this is a really powerful. Uh, political force, that sense that they really hate us, they look down on us, and that really drives a lot of this. And it's not totally baseless. But again, it's like, who speaks for the left? Is it going to be the center left, you know, small L classical liberals like Yasha Monk? Or is it going to be, you know, the woke activists that you're talking about in Skidmore? And they need to work this out because we on the right failed miserably in policing our crazy, right? I mean, we've been through yeah. this. We we did not um, rein in the, the the loudest, craziest voices and look where it led to. So the left, which I think is also often very reluctant to engage in that kind of introspection, needs to understand that if you want to actually win elections and win over hearts and minds, you know, that 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 there are areas of, of commonality, but those areas of commonality and the moment that people think I despise you or yeah. you despise me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that my very existence somehow is an insult to them. And that, and that the quote unquote conversations about race basically involve <laughs> you, sh- you shutting up and then confessing that you're guilty. Yeah. Involved, yeah. The, the, uh, the left has always liked to have quote unquote conversations that can basically consist of them yelling at you. <laughs> Um, well, you know, remember what William F. Buckley said that the liberals, uh, you know, always say that they're open to hearing other points of view, and then are actually surprised to find out that there are other points of view. Yes. Well, you know, and I find that to be the case because it's it's something I noticed that, and it's not so much. I mean, I can kind of see naturally where it comes from because. Uh, you know, Charlottesville is a university town, you know, uh, yeah. and I'm not in Charlottesville. I'm outside of Charlottesville, but, you know, I've go, I'm in there enough that, you know, it's a place that voted 80% for um, 
uh, for, for Barack Obama in 2012. So it gives you an idea that it's a very sort of everybody's very much on the left. And it's very easy if you live there to think that everybody else agrees with you. And that, you know, all reasonable people that you're in this, you know, you that, that you know, I have people tell me that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is in the, is in the center of American politics. And I look at them like, are you crazy? But if you're in that environment, you might actually think that, that, that is the center of American politics because it's the center of the bubble that you, the ideological bubble that you live in. And depending on the neighborhood you live in or where you hang out online, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, this can actually seem like that is the center and that only these extreme crazy troglodytes uh, disagree with this in any way. Well, and, and you know what, you know, well, a lot, I think a majority of Americans now live in bubbles. Actually, I, mm-hmm. I think I saw the the term super clusters in a piece that uh, David French wrote in Time magazine where, you know, you, you think about the number of Americans that live in counties or communities where 80 percent of the people there vote either for Republicans or for Democrats. And then we do have these massive super clusters geographically separated. And maybe that gives you also that this feeling that we have of the country kind of pulling apart. And this goes back to and, and a president who clearly views us in terms of these are my clusters. This is my bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the president of these people and not of those. So all of that plays together that that, that you're in these bubbles. They, they exist online. They exist physically. They exist politically. They exist in so many ways. And I got to tell you that that that's what alarms me about four more years of Trump, somebody who really relishes stoking that kind of that kind of division? Yeah, well, I kind of resist the idea that this is worse than it has ever been ever because you know we had a civil war in this country. Uh, we uh, you know you had the civil yeah. rights movement, you had the Dixiecrats and all that, and you know talk about people who lived in a bubble and were very fanatical and and you know things have been worse. Let's put it that way, but it is still good to be alarmed about the fact that they're getting worse again. They're heading in that direction. And I think people need to get out more. They need to uh, have more interaction with people who don't agree with them. But also the thing I'm pushing to is I, I would, what I would love to see would be more of an ideological realignment where we don't think in terms of left versus right. Because I think what, what corrupts people is this idea that, well, if you identify as left versus right, and left includes everything from Joe Biden out to you know communists. <laughs> Then you know if then if you're on the left, you feel like you have to you have some sort of common kinship, and you have to somehow protect and minimize the the hardcore far left people who are who who don't care about freedom, who want to nationalize, you know, want government to take over everything, who want to shut down anybody who disagrees with them. It disarms you. Thinking of yourself as being on that team disarms you against the crazies on your side. And the same That's thing on true. the right. And we we've, we've absolutely you know you and I have absolutely seen that that. We knew a lot of these crazy, there, there, there were a lot of crazy ideologies out there on the right. We knew that there were some people who were racist. We knew that there were some people who were nationalists. We knew were some people who were very illiberal on the right. But we thought, well, that's a small group over there and you know, we don't have to worry about them as much. And then you suddenly see them you know, become much more powerful and influential and you see how reluctant other people are on the right are to criticize them and say, no, this is not what we stand for. Because it's, you know, they used to say no enemies to the left. There's also a no enemies to the right. We refuse to see the existence of any people who are, are dangerous and bad who are, quote unquote, on our side. So I think this, the way we think of ourselves as being in these ideological coalitions is corrupting. 
this is this is a, a really important point, and we probably should devote a future podcast yeah. to it because I, I I agree with you absolutely, and I do think that there's there there needs to be that kind of realignment. Um, I, I wish I was more optimistic about it. I, I I think that there are challenges that we face that that we haven't faced in the, in the past, and you know we've talked about this before with the way social media is is driving us you know deeper and deeper into various uh, ideological extreme rabbit holes. But but you're right, and that's that's one of the things that I I think you know I I started the podcast by talking about what what we're thinking of doing at the Bulwark, which is that. I, I think that it is absolutely crucial to have that kind of a debate to begin to see things not right, left, but sort of up and down. We're either going to move toward uh, this more illiberal authoritarianism on the right or the left, or we're going to go back to our you know classical liberal roots of, of being more tolerant. And I think that maybe that up and down is is you know what we're going to have to uh, what we're going to have to stress here. So, uh, Robert Trasinski, thank you so much for all of your contributions to The Bulwark and for coming on the podcast today. We'll have to have you back very, very soon. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.